If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one, and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, got a little BGDL Community Spotlight episode talking about monster taming games. Talking about games like Pokemon, like Digimon, like Monster Rancher. Games that have really captured people's imaginations for decades at this point. Tons and tons of video games have come out based on these ideas. Not too many board games, though, but there are a few people trying to change that, including myself and the guest for today, Mr. Tyler Langton from Dice God Games. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Super happy to have you here. This is obviously a topic I am just really excited about, really passionate about, something that I've been working on for a couple of years now. I, I didn't think it would be this long. I thought the game would have come out a year ago, but uh, it just kept growing in idea and scope. And uh, I feel like you <laughs> can maybe relate to that, <laughs> but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, there's not a lot of these games on the market, honestly, and definitely not that many that are memorable. I, I feel like there's People that have tried here and there, but they never really capture exactly what people love about Pokemon, about Digimon, about those games. So excited to chat about that. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Sure. Um, my name is Tyler Langton. Um, I've been designing games since I was six years old, I think is when uh, the oldest I remember um, designing games. I got my start by being inspired by watching various cartoons and the fake board games they'd play on those. And as a kid, I would attempt to replicate them in real life. So, of course, I'd have to uh, fill in the blanks, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, outside of game design, I have my background in software design. The past year or so, I have been doing game design full time uh, as sort of a bit of an in-between situation. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right. So as we just kind of dive right into the topic, what do we mean? I guess let's get a good working definition. What is a monster taming game exactly? I think I would describe a monster taming game as any game in which you are put in charge of a creature or monster or I, I suppose in your case, a robot. <laughs> Robots. Um and you are raising them up, being in charge of them, and using them to whatever the goal of that particular game is. I know not all of them are combat focused, but generally that is tends to be what those sorts of games look at. Right. It just seems to lend itself to create this cool team of monsters or robots or, or whatever it is, and then have them go fight another team. I, I don't know why that just <laughs> flows together, probably formed by our cultures and, and 
anime and the Saturday morning cartoons we saw. And that's what they did. It's like, all right, cool. Let's make some more games like that. <laughs> so that's probably part of it. But, um, but I think there's so much more to it than just the combat. And that's another thing that just, it draws people in from all walks of life. So if you don't like the combat, well, you don't have to necessarily focus on it. There's a lot of other things you can, you can do and think about and, and work on. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just amazing how these kinds of games have captured people for so long and continue to do so. I mean, the new Pokemon game is about to come out. It's like an open world game. I think it's called Arceus. And like people are so excited about this. And it's like the 20th game in the Pokemon series. I mean, it just keeps on coming out and people keep on buying these games by the millions. And so there's something to it. And so what what drew you specifically though? Why, why did you want to uh, create one of these games for yourself? Actually, this kind of ties back into a little bit of what you were just talking about. Um, I really didn't feel there was anything really in this market that really captured what I liked about these games. Uh, There's certainly, like, there's Pokemon versions of board games. Pokemon themselves have a few of their own uh, specialty board games that they've made, but nothing that really captured what I love about them. Nothing that really feels like playing the video games. So um, when I wanted to make something for me and my friends to play, it would just kind of seem like a natural fit kind of fill that void yeah i'm right there in the same boat you look around the market and you go well this doesn't exist maybe i should make it myself and then two years and a ridiculous amount of money later you're like maybe this wasn't a good (laughs) idea but you just keep going you just keep trying to figure it out and my kids are super excited about it which keeps me going and they like it and i hope a lot of other people enjoy it as well and it's a way to kind of play an analog version of these games and so all right let's talk about your game specifically, and we'll kind of go back and forth with the ideas and stories because you and I are approaching th- this topic very differently in our games. A little bit of crossover, carryover, but for the most part, we, we've come at it from very different angles. So I'm excited just to kind of go back and forth and say, oh, what did you do? Oh, here's how I handled that. But um, give me like a brief, yeah, you know, real quick synopsis. What's the name of your game? How does it work? How does it play? And go. Sure. <laughs> so my game is Moxie, A Journey of Monsters. It is a two to 10 player game that plays over about two hours uh, in which players travel the uh, travel the land, uh, building a team of monsters um, in order to battle each other as they compete to earn a spot on what's called the Moxian Guard, basically the um, monster protectors of the town that the players live in. Yeah, so I kind of describe it as a team crafting game where uh, throughout the game, you're collecting these monsters and attempting to build the most synergistic team possible where they both are able to counter your opponent's strategies as well as work well together within themselves. Gotcha. And I know your game has exploration, like you're, you're visiting different mm-hmm. areas, you're finding different monsters, you're battling it out. I think you have a, like a tournament at the end where you kind of fight mm-hmm. each other and see who, who wins, who's the king of the mountain. Is that how it works? Yes, exactly. So the way Moxie kind of functions is the game's played over rounds. Every round has two sections. One, the first part where you're out exploring the world, finding monsters and capturing them for, to add to your team. And a second section where you face off against another player uh, where you will battle to see uh, which of you is is prepared enough to continue into a more dangerous territory where you can find additional monsters. Um All of that eventually culminates at the end of those eight rounds where everyone will take their specially crafted team uh, of the monsters they've been able to hobble together um, to face off in a tournament bracket where where the winner is crowned the new member of the Moxian Guard. 
Gotcha. So the end of the, your game, it, like, does everything really just build up to that tournament and then whoever wins the tournament wins the game or is there a victory point? Yes, that is exactly correct. It is one final climactic tournament. I wanted to make sure that the game sort of ends in a big explosive finale as opposed to a slow accumulation of points. It just felt appropriate for the um, for the genre, if that yeah, it makes perfect sense for the theme of becoming the champion, like the region champion. Yes. Or in Pokemon, you become like you have to fight the Elite Four and then you go in the Hall of Fame. You know, it just makes sense. And also, your game goes from two to ten players. So you got a lot <laughs> of people able to battle it out. And let's let's talk about that real quick because the video game sure. version versions of the these games in general, almost all are solo only. Maybe there's a little bit of co-op here and you you know, Pokemon, you might have to trade back and forth to be able to capture all of the monsters by the end or whatever. But for the most part, you're playing through the story solo. Your game is two to 10 though. So tell me about that decision and what all has kind of gone into creating a game like this for so many people to be able to play it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So the player count started as a bit of a necessity. Uh, prior to COVID, um, we'd often have very large get-togethers of me and my friends. We'd have board game nights. But honestly, very few board games could play as many people as we'd have over. So we'd either have to split up into individual groups or we'd have to play, not bad games by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, more party-centric games, stuff that is made for maybe a little bit more of a casual crowd in mind than what exactly we were going for, if that makes sense. Something a little bit less complex partially due to of course necessity um but in addition to that when it came to this theme like this theme being the game that i made for that size of a player group i in addition to capturing what makes those games so special like what we love about them i wanted to to make use of the physical nature of a board game as opposed to the limitations of a digital game where it can be hard to find that many players all at once in a local area right to share screen space for one um whereas when you're playing a board game i think a big part of the experience is sharing that experience with others i know even your game gabe also is uh one or two players so i'm sure you feel much the same way um oh, yeah. yeah so i want to make sure that it was a game that you could take that monster raising experience and share it with your friends if that makes Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to make the game that I'm working on one or two players is because I wish these games in in video game form had a couch co-op mode. I wish we, you know, me and my friend could sit on the couch and and maybe it's a split screen where he's running around and I'm running around and we're doing different things. But at the same time, we can experience the world together. We can get into double battles and I've got mine and he's got his and we're fighting other teams, you know, two versus two. And so actually in my game, every battle is two versus two and it, it creates ah, so much actually. more interesting strategic or really tactical moments because you're like, okay, I'm going to maneuver this robot over here maneuver that one over there. And I'm going to try to do this ability and that's going to stack and it's going to push the the enemy AI over into this area. And I'm going to hit him with that. But anyway, you, it's almost like Gloomhaven where you've got a puzzle you're figuring it out. And it's not just, I walk up and I hit the thing for two damage. I wait for my turn. I hit him for two damage again. Like, no, there's more to it because you kind of have this tactical nature created by the, the double battles. And I feel like that's just been a really interesting way to differentiate my game from others. But then also it just creates a, an interesting puzzle. Every, t- every time you battle, it's not just like, okay, put up my, let's see, I, I'm, I'm fighting a water uh, robot. And so let me put up, <laughs> you know, my grass robot and, and hit it for five damage over and over again. Like, no, there's a little bit more to it and the tactical uh, nature of it. But what did you run yeah. into as far as like 
the two to ten, like that is such a massive yep. <laughs> player count, right? And a game with two players is probably very, very different than a game with ten. So what were some of the issues you <laughs> ran into by having such a large range for players? Like what are some of the things you maybe had to cut or streamline or, or make move faster so you didn't have too much downtime, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So because I knew from the get-go that I was going to be running with so many players, like the player count could vary so widely, I need to make sure that the playtime, of course, could be kept to a very steady, like in the same kind of range. Um, We have tested the game so far with, I believe our current is nine. We have tested that nine a few different times now, as long as well as uh, everything in between. We have yet to play a 10-player game. That is still on our to-do list, but it is th- it's very much a thing we are uh, attempting to do. Um, but it has been very consistently two hours. A lot of those decisions came down to making sure that as many things in the game are simultaneous as possible. So both everything you do in the first half of a round during the capture phase, all simultaneous. Uh, and ev- all of the battles where you pair up with one other partner all of those battles are happening simultaneously as well. So you as an individual actually have very little in the way of excessive downtime where you're waiting for someone else to do something. There's a little bit maybe while you finish capturing monsters and you wait for one or two other players to make one or two more decisions, but it's very short. So even when you're playing with eight, nine players, um, you're constantly you know, making interesting decisions as though it's almost always your turn. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the perfect way to handle it is just to make as much as you can simultaneous. That way there isn't that downtime. You don't have people just sitting around waiting for other folks to to finish their turns. All right. So let's, let's dive into exploration. I think that's one of the core tenets of what makes these games so fun. So interesting is that you're, you're going to new places, you're finding new monsters, you're discovering little things that you didn't know were there. How does your game handle it, especially because you have so many people, right? So how, how are you handling it where people are simultaneously exploring? Like, how does that work? Absolutely. So the way Moxie, the way we handle it in Moxie Journey of Monsters is uh, each zone, each area of the game, like each locale is its own unique deck of cards. So the zone you start in, uh, Freywick Streets, is one deck of cards that has a certain combination of monsters you'd expect to find maybe in a back alley street which contains a totally different set of monsters than you'll find one or two zones over, say in River Soul, which is a little graveyard area. So um, those decks contain completely different monsters and different ratios where they might intermix a little bit. Uh, The way that sort of capturing system works is that players have a certain number of moxie tokens. Um, They choose an area that they're able to explore that they've unlocked so far throughout the game, which they unlock more as the game progresses. They choose how many Moxie tokens to spend, and that's how many cards from that particular deck they draw for that turn. From the cards they draw, they can choose one of those monsters to capture from that area. Um, So by spending, committing more of these tokens to that area, they get a wider variety of monsters to choose from. But no matter how many cards they draw, no matter how long they search, they're only able to capture one per round from that specific area which means that in other areas where they could capture monsters from, they'll have fewer options and be a little bit more to the whims of fate at. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I like that you have different decks that correspond to mm-hmm. different areas. Um, with, with mine, I've got multiple decks, but really they're split up by number. 
and just to make setup and tear down easier. So if you're in the first part of the game, you don't have to worry about these cards over here because you're not going to draw from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like numbered cards on the back. And if if you're out in an area, you, you have a little chart and you can roll a d20. And basically, you, based on the roll, and you can manipulate it in different ways, you can get items and different things that kind of mess with the roll a little bit. Um, you you draw cards based on what you roll. So if I, if I roll a die and I roll an eight, then it might tell me to draw a card uh, five from the deck and I'll draw card five oh, and that's interesting. The, the robot that I'm in, encountering, right? Um, and then like some of the uh, the robots that are super rare, you might have to roll a 21 mm-hmm. on a D20 to find it. And say, so, well, that's not possible. <laughs> that is correct. You are going to have to find an item in the world somewhere that's going to give you extra uh, bonuses or different things to manipulate the dice to do different things. And so that's one way I've effectively been able to lock away uh, robots that you will have to come back to these areas and find later once you find different items or, or things like that. And so I think that's Actually, super important to kind of make uh, or give the player a sense of progression and exploration and, and finding new things. Yeah, I agree entirely. Actually, that's one of the things I was concentrating on most when I was designing uh, Moxie. I really wanted the game to be something that players would feel excited about exploring game after game after game. So every time you come back to play it, I hope that it takes players a long time before they uncover all of the different monsters they can find in Moxie. So, for instance, um, a lot of these sorts of monster-raising games have legendary monsters or whatever they happen to call them, right? Like, Pokemon has, like, the bird trio, etc. Digimon has certain digivolutions they can only get by combining certain monsters together. And then... Like Monster Rancher has certain monsters that can only be gotten by very specific CDs. So in Moxie, the way I sort of did that is I locked away individual monsters B- because I use this card deck system. By making to make a monster rare, I literally can just include fewer copies of it in a deck. And some of these like more rare monsters, sort of legendary monsters, I think we call them rumored monsters in Moxie. Uh, I literally only have a single copy of in the very last route. And because Moxie uses a round system with a very defined endpoint, you aren't even guaranteed to get to that route every game or even most games. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that with cards, you can adjust the ratio and, mm-hmm. and make things rare or not, depending on how many copies are in the deck versus with dice, where it's going to be random every single time. Like You could literally roll a mm-hmm. one 10 times in a row. Now, it's not likely, but it is possible, <laughs> but you're not going to draw... 10 of the same monster in a row from a deck because there's not 10 copies in the deck, you know? And so I feel like that's a really smart thing to think through. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Gabe. I'm sorry. But uh, it's funny you say that because we definitely have included in some areas 20 copies of the same monster (laughs) (laughs) for when they're supposed to be particularly annoying. Of course, we also have items and certain ways to adjust that. So uh, one item in the game that you are able to acquire um, when you search a route, you're able to spend that item and name a monster. And then when you draw that monster during your search, if you can reveal those copies, bury them to the bottom of the deck and then draw to replace them. Sort of like a repellent. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like that you have ways to mitigate. So it's not only mm-hmm. that that feature is in the game to kind of represent like when you're walking through a cave in Pokemon, you run into Zubat 47 <laughs> times in a row. And it's like, oh, another one. Like, I love that you're creating, recreating that. But at the same time, there's ways to mitigate and do some things to get away from that many Zubats yes. in a row. Now, let's talk about capturing the monsters in your game. I think that's a, another mm-hmm. one of these like main foundational things. I think you mentioned it I mean, briefly just, just a minute ago. But tell me a little bit deeper how it works. You encounter a monster card. 
Now what? How do I add it to my team? How do I adjust my team? How do I move things around? How does it work? Sure. So the way it works in Moxie is you spend those tokens and you draw that many monsters from the deck, right? For just from the top. And that's literally just about it. You just have that hand of monsters that you can select from. There's no battling them in order to capture them. All of that's kind of been streamlined and it's assumed that you're competent enough with Moxie. It's essentially a talent that lets you charm monsters. Um, by just finding them in that area, by spending that many tokens in order to uh, draw into them, you're able to charm that specific monster if you so choose to. Okay, that makes sense, especially when you have so many people at the table. Like I like I, I love how yep. streamlined that system is, where you're not using a bunch of time to battle the thing. It's like no, you spend the tokens mm-hmm. and that's it. Let's move on. Did you have a system before that though, where you did have to battle? Like is that something that got streamlined out, or has this been the system all along? This has been one of the key the key things that I knew going in I wanted to do. I knew that with this large of a player count, that just really wasn't going to be feasible, especially when you're playing with, you know, eight, nine, ten players. There's a good chance you're probably playing with at least a few of them for the first time. So if they have questions and you have to stop what you're doing to go answer their question, if it's a complicated question, it's going to take, you know, additional time. Whereas just most people have played a drafting game of some description uh, where you have these options to choose from. Choose the one that either best matches your team or you like the most or you think fits your team the best. Um, choose it, add it to your team, bury the rest of them. Keeps it very simple, very streamlined, while still giving that feeling of searching these areas for monsters um, and encountering them like out in the world. Gotcha. Do you also have like items that give you a greater likelihood of... Okay, tell me about the items and how they work. Yeah, so uh, every round, um, in addition to the winners being able to go out further and explore more areas, the losers are given many benefits too. One of which is they can train their monsters up into more powerful forms, which I'm sure we'll get into in a bit. But also they get to revisit the market and choose an item from there. In addition to that, uh, you can also find items out in the world. So when you're drawing monsters from, from those decks, sometimes you'll also draw an item card which you can forego choosing a monster from that hand of cards you dealt, uh, you drew in order to take that item instead. Items have a wide variety of effects. Um, some of them are used during battle. Some of them, uh, some of them give you more continuous benefits. Some of them are used right away to grant you additional search tokens permanently. Um, some of them are used to play a little side minigame we have to have a different way of capturing monsters. Um, and some of them were like such as that repellent. I believe it's a repel wand. I forget the exact name we have in Moxie. Um, a warding wand, I believe. Uh, <laughs> you can use during the search phase to either capture additional monsters from that search hand or to repel monsters or otherwise deal with the odds. Actually, we have a really interesting item in the game, which we I've kind of toyed with throughout the game's balance. Um, which allows you to search an area another player is in as though you were with them, a torn map, um, which gives you a chance to find monsters that you may not normally have access to yet, which kind of makes for an interesting decision point. 
Very cool. Yeah, very different from what I'm doing with Robomon. In my game, the battle system, there's basically two different types of battles. You have the like trainer battles, which are very tactical. You have the battle mat, and you're moving your tokens mm -hmm. around, you're playing cards, and you know there's a lot of stuff going on. But then when you're just encountering a robot in the wild, then it's not you don't use the tactical battle mat. It's really just a turn-based back-and-forth kind of thing. And you're trying to lower that robot's health to a point where you can capture it. And the way that system works is a little bit inspired by Pokemon Go. It's got a, mm -hmm. a little bit of a dexterity element where inside the box lid of the game, there is a target printed. And <laughs> you are tossing a die, depending on the, the size of the what's called a reprogrammer, kind of like a Pokeball. But you're mm -hmm. tossing a die and into the box and wherever it lands, it might give you a bonus or you might just have an instant capture and you, you know, didn't have to fight at all. It's just automatic if you hit right in dead center uh, or you might have a plus one or whatever. But if you miss the target completely, then it's like throwing your Pokeball way off in the, the yonder and it, it's, it's nothing. It's useless. It's wasted. And so it's got a little bit of that. And then whatever number is showing plus whatever bonus you might have, uh, that's your that's your, your total. And then that total has to be the, the same or above whatever the robot's health is. Right, So if you've knocked it down to four, then you have to roll at least a four into the box to be able to capture it. And so it, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I love dexterity games. I feel like every game I create is like, oh, how can I put a dexterity element into it? And there's a, a, a mod if you don't like dexterity at all where you don't have to use this box system at all if you don't want to. But it's just a little bit of tension, right? So not only the die and like what's going to happen, but also like the skill of having to roll the die into the box and try to land it inside the uh, the square target and uh yeah it's, it's a lot of fun man uh, at least at least i think so and hopefully other people uh, will too but um again that tension just kind of like in, in pokemon like you, you you throw the pokeball and you're like hoping and the ball bounces around once twice three times and then the pokemon pops back <laughs> out and you, you're still fighting it's like no dang it or you throw a regular pokeball at zapdos or mewtwo or whatever and you happen to get the one percent in the rng and it captures it and it's like heck yeah uh, it's just a really cool moment and so i, just, I was trying to rec uh, recreate that tension in the capturing system uh, of my game. Anything else you want to add as far as like, uh, let's, let's talk about teams actually based off of that, sure. like creating teams and like really thinking through, okay, I want to add this one to my team because it really goes well. It corresponds. Like, do you have anything like that where you're having to think through as a player? Oh, for sure. I think that's one of the most key elements of any good monster raising game, which when, when you have multiple monsters, Monster Rancher and certain Digimon games go a little bit different direction where you just raise one monster, but I, I digress. I think in games where you're raising a whole team of monsters, having an, a, a reason to diversify your team is really important. So in Moxie, the way we do it is each monster has a very basic um, power, so to speak, right? Which is just a, a base level, but each monster, I believe, nearly all of them, if not if not all of them, I there's a few that don't, but the vast, vast, vast majority of monsters have special effects and abilities that uh, can play well, both with themselves, both with your own abilities, and with also the abilities of the other monsters on your team. For instance, nearly every water monster in Moxie interacts well with other water monsters. So they try to encourage you to uh, kind of stick to that one water type on your team. But of course, as anyone who's played these monster racing games know, sticking to a single type on your team comes with its own downfalls uh, and perils. Namely, type diversity is very important. And so if any of your opponents happen to know what you're up to with that, they can try to uh, craft their team around that. In addition to Moxie, because you battle an opponent after every single round, 
you have to make your team decisions based not only on what will work well for your specific team, but will but what will counter your opponent's teams. If you know your opponent is going to be using certain strategies, you might want to employ certain other monsters, even if they're not the best fit for your team, in order to counter that player's strategies. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And Pokemon really established this as a good way to create uh, team synergy and a battle system is, is saying, hey, this is better than that, which is better than this, which is better than that, and kind of creating a loop, especially with that, that trifecta of, of fire, grass, and water, you know, kind of being the core, mm-hmm. and then everything else building off of that. And it just makes a lot of sense. And also, you have the benefit of it being very familiar. If someone has ever played any of these video games, then they're going to immediately grasp what you're doing in your board game because they, they get it, mm-hmm. right? You're not, yeah, I think that's the thing. You got to be careful not to try to be too original with these games. Like there's a certain expectation people have going in. And so if you try to do something completely different, have a totally different system for how these things interact with each other, people are going to have a harder time understanding how your game works and they might not like it as much because they expected what they're used to. And so I think that's definitely <laughs> something to, uh, to keep in mind, and let's keep traveling down this road. Let's get into the uh, the battle system. How does your game work? Like, what's the? Does it use dice? Does it use cards? Does it use abilities on the actual monster? Tell me about how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So in Moxie, your team size is six. I don't know what yours is, Gabe, but I believe six. I think Pokemon just got it right out of the gate. We've experimented with different team sizes and we just keep coming back to six as this perfect number that like isn't. I originally had five and then people were like, why aren't there six over and over and over again? I was like, fine, <laughs> fine. There'll be daggum six. There'll be six. Fine. But honestly, that made it easier for two player mode because that makes it an even breakdown where one player has three, the other player has three, there's six. It's supposed to have in five yep. and it's like, okay, well, two and two and then somebody <laughs> has the extra one. Like six just made a lot of sense but yeah originally i was five but uh i got talked down from that so anyway keep going <laughs> yeah absolutely i i uh i also had actually started with five because it seems like a nice not round number but you know what it means like like that sort of nice point that a lot of people like but i kept noticing that like with only five you sort of need a certain core to your team but there wasn't a lot of wiggle room in the team to uh, counter other strategies, so to speak. So you might have a core team of four or five monsters, but then you weren't able to sort of splash in that little extra zazz for your team to, to surprise your opponents, if that makes sense. Um, anyway, I digress. So in, in Moxie, you have a team of six monsters, and unlike a lot of these monster capturing games, you actually have to pick and choose these monsters carefully, because once you release a monster back to the wild, you've given up your control of it. Um, and it's gone from your team. And if you want it back, if you change your mind, you'll have to go capture it again. So you really have to make those sorts of decisions as you're grabbing these monsters. You can't just kind of lock them away to you know, pick and choose later. Um, anyway, so battling. So when you go into a battle, you get to know who your opponent is prior to the capture phase. So let's say I know Jim is playing again, like an entire water team, I might put in monsters on my team. I might go looking specifically for monsters that round who can help counter against his strategy. Uh, When you go into the battle itself, both players from their six monsters, or up to six monsters, you can run less if you choose to, uh, choose the order they'll be sending them out in. So unlike a lot of these monster raising games where when one of your monsters is knocked out or faints, or in our game we call it dropping, um, when that monster drops, you instead of choosing specifically what monster out next, 
you have to plan before the start of that battle which monster will take its place. So choosing the order of your monsters is really important. You have to play a sort of mind game with your opponent of when are they going to be including this certain monster in their lineup and when, like, how do I position my team to best counter that? So uh, once both players have decided on their order, they both send out their first monster, the first one in their lineup. Um, and the basic the basic way it'll work is both player, uh, both monsters have a little power, a strength in the bottom left corner, which lists some number of dice generally that they'll roll. And that will be that monster's uh, power. Both players will compare the power. Whichever one is higher will knock out the other. But they subtract the opponent's power from their own. So if your monster has rolls an 8 and the opponent rolls a 7, your monster will be left at 1 power when the opponent sends out their next monster. And that's super simple. It's very quick. It's very easy and dirty. But of course, every monster also has their own unique abilities that allow you to do special things all dependent on what that monster is, uh, which have a wide variety of effects, both that can influence power, that can influence team lineup, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. Now, how do the typings play into the battle system as well? You know, fire versus water or something like that? <laughs> sure. So we have seven types in Moxie. We have three primary types of mind, body, and soul, which work as a sort of triangle. And then we have four subtypes of earth, water, fire, and air, which um, sort of act as supplementary. They do not work as a strict rock, paper, scissor style system. It is more dependent on the monster itself. So one earth type monster might be weak to water, but it might not make sense for another earth type to be weak to, to water monsters, so they won't be. Um, each monster in Moxie lists both its types in the top left corner of their card, but also their weaknesses in the bottom right. If you plan your team correctly and you send out a monster that is super effective, that its types match the weakness of the, at least one of the weaknesses of the opposing monster, then you'll score a critical hit against that monster, which will double your power. Very cool. I like that. And I like how streamlined mm -hmm. it is. Because like we've, we've said several times, you've got a lot of people at the table. This has to be quick. Yep. You know, you can't have a 10 minute long battle where everybody else took two minutes and these other people are taking 10. It's like, oh, we're just sitting around waiting. Like you have to get it done pretty quickly. And I feel like this in a lot mm -hmm. of ways uh, is very similar to a lot of the auto battle games that are very popular right now. It's computer games and video games where you kind of put your team together and then it comes out and they go boom, 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 boom. And, and it's over. Yep. Like, and then you go to the next match. I feel like it recreates that really, really well. For sure. I will, I will be no stranger that, that to say I took quite a bit of inspiration from some of that. <laughs> Yeah. Now with Robomon, I went a totally different direction because my battles yep. can take a little while, <laughs> right? Uh, especially if it's like a, a trainer type battle. I call them club members <laughs> anyway, like a club battle um, where you're fighting against uh, a trainer that has a bunch of ro robots and you're kind of going back and forth and whatever. Because you got this tactical movements that you know, have to think through, all right, where do I want to go? How do I want to position myself? What moves are going to do what to where? So you're thinking through that. Uh, and then you're also thinking through the typing and the way I handle that system is you have advantage or disadvantage or neutral, right? So water has advantage over fire. And so anytime you do a water attack to a fire robot, you get to roll an advantage die, which is going to add extra damage or it might have a critical hit or something like that. But if you have disadvantage, you're going to roll a disadvantage die and that's going to take away your damage. Similar to, uh, again, Gloomhaven, where it's got those decks and you, you draw the card and it gives you a plus one or a zero or a minus two or, you know, and... I took my inspiration from that. I think that's a really good system to say, okay, the move does three damage, 
Like, you don't have to worry about rolling a D8. or It does three damage no matter what. You can count on it. But then you have a little bit of uncertainty because you're going to draw, or in my case, you're going to roll, to see what gets added or maybe taken away from that attack. And you're having to kind of push your luck uh, in that. And then the overall system, though, is a dice pool system where you roll dice and uh, these custom dice to give you icons, and it might be movement or special attack or different things like that. And you're kind of having to allocate where you're going to put those onto your robots for that turn. So you have this randomness at the beginning, but then you're like determining what you're going to use that uh, set of dice in, in what way. And you can manipulate them and re-roll and do some different things to kind of change it around. And there's abilities that say, okay, this robot can use this icon as a wild or, you know, things like that to kind of differentiate things. Mm-hmm. But it's middle, it's a puzzle. Again, every combat is a very interesting puzzle to be solved with a little bit of luck, a little bit of randomness in there to, to make you uncertain. To You know, you can't just show up and, oh, I'm going to win. It's like, no, there's going to be some things that might happen. <laughs> I have played so many uh, playtest sessions by myself where I had everything that was looking good, and then the AI rolled a couple crits in a row and just wiped out my team. And it's like, we didn't come in. You know, and so that can, that can happen. That's the RNG, the random number generator nature of these games. And at the same time, that was it was a fun moment. And it's rare enough where you don't get super upset. You're like, well, that gun, that's... That's the way it goes sometimes. And, but anyway, you, you keep playing. And so that's, uh, that's been my system. Anything else you want to add as far as the battle system or any kind of like little nuances? Yeah, I found that super interesting just how divergent we were there. But of course, I take it your game's more of a campaign style. You're not meant to finish it in a single sitting, right? Oh, no. It's, the goal is okay. at least 12 hours, <laughs> but you can play okay. five minutes. It's like, it has a very good mm-hmm. save system where you can come in, you can do one battle and it takes, you know, 10 minutes and you're like, oh, I feel pretty good. I'll come back tomorrow. Or you can play for multiple hours straight and go through a lot of story elements and have events happen and you're doing all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, our games are very divergent in like the length yep. of, of game. I think that's kind of one of one of the biggest reasons we had to go so so such different directions here. So I wanted to capture the entire experience in a two hour chunk. Um, and as a result, you can't have those sorts of battles where every battle takes 10 minutes or et cetera, et cetera. And those are certainly, that sounds fantastic and super, super interesting. But if you were to try cram all of that into two hours for, uh, you know, eight, nine players, it'd be quite a bit. Um, yeah, you'd have a lot of uh, very frustrated players if your game, like, tried to take the same approach that the mind <laughs> did, right? And again, it gets back into, like... What's your audience? Like, who are you after Mm -hmm. as far as who's targeted at the game? Like, you're trying to do the entire Pokemon experience in 90 to 120 minutes. I'm trying to do an entire Pokemon experience, the entire Pokemon experience. You're like, you can can do a a (laughs) run-through of the original games in, you know, a handful of hours. I'm trying to do the same kind of experience with, with my game. Again... It's just mm-hmm. it just depends on what you're chasing after, right? Um, yep. And also what you have the time, uh, effort, money to to put into it. Um, the game that I'm I've been working on again. It's I started this game April 2020, so mm-hmm. we're coming up on almost two years now of development, and it's nowhere near done. Like I'm getting to a point now where I can do the <laughs> the crowdfunding campaign that has enough of the demo basically done, but it's still got another year of work that'll go into the story and, and balancing the encounters and creating new robots, all sorts of stuff. So again, it depends on how much time you want to spend. And I think that's another reason why there's so few of these games. It is such an upfront <laughs> cost in both time, resources, and also money that most publishers and most designers don't want to deal with it. They would rather design 10 games and the time it's going to take you to design that one massive game. And so I think that's something else. You just got to design, decide as a designer and as a publisher, like what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, for certain. Especially, I, I know we talked about this very briefly, but with 
a lot a big charm of these games is just how divergent the monsters are and so when you have i'm not sure how many monsters you have in your game uh but in moxie we have i think our final total i believe is 105 if i'm not mistaken and to balance all of those sorts of different monsters together and create and make sure they're interesting and varied um and provide that sort of depth and strategy uh is certainly a pretty massive undertaking. I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure it's the same in your game, Gabe. Yeah, the current goal is to have around 75 uh, by mm-hmm. the end, and maybe more, depending on you know if the campaign goes really, really well. Let's let's throw some stretch goals in there. Let's see what else we can come up yeah. with and, and create some new robots. Uh, but then that also includes what you effectively call evolutions. Mind the robots so they don't evolve. Mm-hmm. You can basically upgrade them. You find spare parts and blueprints, and you kind of build a new robot out of the, the old one and kind of create a stage two and a stage three. So let's talk about that. Do, does your game have like an evolution mechanism where you can kind of go from level one to level two and it upgrades the monster in any way? Is that, how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we've incorporated that into Moxie is we have a separate deck called the advancement deck where we have kept uh, four copies of each monster that monsters can um Uh, advance into and on each monster's card if it can advance into a future form it'll have a little a in the top right corner so after every battle in addition to the winners being able to progress um the loser of a given battle spends additional time training their monsters so they can choose one of their monsters who who has who can advance from their current form and return it to where it came from and grab the advanced form from the advancement deck as long as there's still at least one copy left um so if you have, say, a little, oh, what would be a good example? A little worm monster. Uh, you could advance it into a larger worm monster with a very hard exterior shell, right? Um, and the advancements, in addition to just having a very simple power boost, right? They also have either enhanced abilities of its old form or brand new abilities that can open up a new strategy and new options for your team. Yeah, I like that. I like that your mechanism is like a it's like a catch-up mechanism as well. Okay, you lost the battle, but now you have this way of, of improving your deck. You, it's not a reward for losing necessarily, but it is a way to mm-hmm. improve. You feel like you got something as opposed to nothing, and it's a way to progress. I, I think, And I think progression is a big key here. One of the things people love about these mm-hmm. games in, in video game form is progressing. You feel like you go from level one to level 75 by the end of the game when you're fighting all the, the really difficult challenges and you get to see your monster evolve. It, it gains in abilities and the stats go up and you get to do new things and do different things and maybe learn some different things to help you progress in the world as well, whether it's like cut or fly or any of the old you know moves that you had to teach different uh, Pokemon or whatever it was to, to get to new parts in the world to explore more. So you get that progression mixed with exploration. Like there's a lot of really cool things to think about. And from a game design, like a board game design standpoint, it's how do you recreate that in analog mode when you don't have a, a you know behind the scenes uh, code to handle it all for you. And I think that's a challenge, but I feel like you've come up with a really good way to do it as far as like, having that extra deck and being able to kind of trade cards out and, and this little catch up mechanism. That's a, that's a really cool thing. Was that there from the beginning or was that something that got added later as a way to kind of figure out how to create the evolution, how to create that progression? That actually was one of the trickiest things I found um, in the early design process. We did eventually come to the advancement deck fairly early on in the design process. It kind of became a natural stepping stone because, uh, of course, that sort of evolution or advancement is, I think, like you said, Gabe, a very necessary part of the experience. 
Um, I believe Monster Rancher doesn't really have that, but I think that's more of an exception than than the general rule. It's just a very clear, easy way to see it. And with our system, um, having the monsters on cards can make that kind of tricky. Uh, you just labeling like, oh, yes, when you advance this monster, it gains all the abilities on this line below there. So that was something we considered. Or I considered putting like all the forms of a monster onto like a single card. And then you would just mark like which stage it was currently at. But that didn't really give each stage its sort of own gravitas, so to speak. And not to mention just being cramped on the card itself. <laughs> yeah, I feel like space becomes a huge issue whenever you're trying to have that much inf- information on a normal poker-sized card. You know, I've seen some yep. games try to do this where, like, the top, like, the, the card is split in half, and depending on which half is face up, or which half is up, yeah, you, you basically up. spin it around. So if level one is, <laughs> is this top half, and then you spin it around for this other. Did you try that as well? Yes, I did, including flipping the card like over to its other side to look at like double-sided yeah. cards for this for the uh, same effect. But none of it really seemed to give the new monster st- the sort of credence it deserved. It didn't feel very exciting, and it, as you mentioned, it was very cramped. Um, so by making it sort of a spectacle of putting the old monster back and going to find its new form, right? And it is easy to find their their by number, right? So if you go from one form, the next form is just plus one of the number, which is very easy to track. You get to, and if you're doing it for the first time, right, seeing what that new form is, you can go in there, pull that card out, and see it in all its glory, right? And to learn what it does if you're if you're new to the game or you don't know exactly what it's transforming into. Um, you get to see, you know, the brand new power, its brand new abilities, the new art on it. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's we're in 100% agreement there. I love the discovery <laughs> aspect of doing it that way. Like you said a, a moment ago, like space on the card is so limited, especially if you're if you have multiple abilities, you have a lot going on. You don't want to just overwhelm the player with too much, and then also hopefully your art is really good, and you don't want to shrink really good <laughs> art and make it smaller. You want to make it bigger, and so you know the idea that you would put a whole bunch of information on a card, I don't think it works very well with these kinds of games. And I would much rather a player discard a card and then go to the deck and have to draw the new one and go, Oh snap, this is cool. Like if they had no real idea, (laughs) like they know it's going to be better, but they don't know exactly Mm -hmm. how. And then maybe the art is a little bit different and upgraded versions and evolved version, whatever. And they're like, Oh man, this is such a cool thing. And they get to discover that for the first time. And also what I'm doing with mine is for the tokens. So every robot has its own, uh, Little, it's a little bit bigger than an inch uh, token that goes on the battle mat, but then all of those are face down on a double, uh, a dual layered token sheet, and so you you pop them out, but all you see is the back. You only see the number, so you don't know what number ten looks like until you have to draw the number ten token. You have to pop it out, and then it fits right back in. So the the token sheet is also the storage solution, and that's that was something I was really trying to like cut down on wasted you know paper and chipboard stuff like that Mm -hmm. but it also works because you can't you don't know what any of these things look like until you discover them for yourself and that's another thing it's just like a a really cool moment for players to go oh man like i had no idea it was gonna look like this this is really cool oh that is really cool i I like that a lot i um i do leave the advancement deck uh, as open information so if players want to get particularly competitive with it like they really want to make sure the thing they're advancing into is good for their team they can take a moment to look through it and you know check make sure that this is something they actually want to do um but i've noticed with basically everyone we've played with that 
players will just choose their favorite monsters to evolve and they'll they don't really they're more excited to see what it will do after they make that decision um and very few of them will bother checking all of their possibilities and like min max that that way i think that sort of discovery is very important for players and something kind of naturally seek out yeah, and it goes back to how you play the game, like what what you're trying to accomplish. Because I know a lot of people min max, and they they have their team full of the strongest, most powerful monsters or whatever that they can find. But most people, mm-hmm. they go, "This one looks really cool. I like the colors. I like how mm-hmm. cute that one is." And they fill their team with stuff that they connect to that they might have a little bit harder of a of a game. It might be a little bit more challenging playthrough because these aren't the best necessarily, but it's <laughs> their team, and you get to kind of own your team. And uh, yeah, I think that's something to to play into. And I like how the I like how you have kind of catered to both ways. You know, if you want to create your team of just stuff that you think looks cool, you can do that. If you want to min max, you can do that too, and then kind of go from there. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit though. Let's, so my game sure. is cooperative. Your game is very competitive. What are some things mm-hmm. that you've learned? I've, um, you mentioned before we hit record that you had some like interesting examples that popped up recently about how the competitive nature of things kind of plays into all that. Tell me about that. Uh, specifically, yeah. So what I specifically want to talk about was, uh, an example that popped up in our, just our most recent play test. Uh, I believe we were talking about balance is the big one. I think that we were discussing for co-op versus competitive. So in your case, if you have something in your game that players discover and it, I can, I can let you tell us, Gabe, I apologize. Oh, you're talking about like the broken combos and stuff? Yeah, exactly. If you want to speak to your own game, I didn't want to speak for you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what, yeah. We were talking about this before uh, we hit record. In my game, I don't mind broken combos as long as they're not obvious, right? If you find that this robot mixed with that robot creates this just ridiculous uh, combination of abilities or attacks or something like that, and it's just like, oh, this is really really cool. But that's fine because you're playing against the game. It doesn't feel like unfair. It feels like you discovered something. You cracked the code on on something that either the game designer put in there on purpose or didn't. <laughs> but either way, <laughs> uh, you've kind of figured it out and you feel clever. You feel, you know, whatever. And you, you can have fun with it. And if you don't want it to be uh, too easy, you can just not use that. But in a competitive situation, when somebody yep. figures out a combination that breaks the game, all of a sudden, maybe that's not quite as fun uh, unless you're that one person, but for everybody else. And so, yeah. All right. You keep going. Yep, that's exactly right. So in in Moxie's case, because it is a competitive game, although I am completely fine with something being particularly strong, it has to be fun f- to both discover it and be the player who's using it. And it has to be interesting and fun to counter. It has to be fun and interesting to be on the receiving end of it too. So if there's a certain strategy in a game of Moxie you discover where... Um, let's say you find a particularly busted combo or if you find these two monsters and they work super well together uh and you can you know leverage them correctly they become a crazy unsolvable force that's only fun for everyone if it happens once in a blue moon so for instance in our most recent play test we had a situation where um a monster that we've been tinkering with and to balance properly uh is particularly strong, but we've inserted a ton of different counters, uh, a ton of different ways to m- either mitigate it or almost shut it down completely if you know what to look for, um, or even if you just happen to discover it on you know through the course of the game. Uh, but we had a situation the other night where one of the player classes, one of the, one of uh, a certain ability um, my opponent had, 
unbeknownst to me, actually just shut all of those down. So just because he happened to be playing in that one particular uh, class, um, all of the counters that we had put in the game uh, turns out just were not available to me that game. So that's something we have to look for. Um, also, we have found certain combinations of characters and monsters that are particularly strong, but it's so incredibly rare to acquire those monsters in that particular team that it's only come up the one time. And in the vast majority of games, that almost certainly won't happen, especially if players know that it's a possible thing that could happen the next time they play. Uh, so situations like that are fine, but situations where suddenly you just don't have a counter, those are the kind of things that we're looking for in playtesting to make sure that those get ironed out and that players always feel like they have an out or they have some way to to counter player strategies. Absolutely. And it really just comes down to a ton of playtesting. But the good news is with these kinds of games, you can just do playtests of the battles. And you can just say, all right, I'm going to combine these monsters, or in my case, these robots, and we're just going to do the battle system. I don't have to worry about any of the other parts of the game. I don't have to worry about the exploration, the story. None of the other stuff matters. I'm only going to playtest the battles and you can do that pretty quickly, and you can do a whole bunch over and over again, and you can have other playtesters that focus on that, and you say, hey, here are your options. Make a cool team, and then let's just see what happens. And so I think there's like a, a negative in that it just takes a ton of extra playtesting, but the positive is you can do the playtesting a lot faster. Absolutely. Uh, actually, I had a really funny moment of that in a in a fairly recent playtest. I think it was... Oh, probably about a dozen playtests or so ago. We uh, had a combination of one character. It's a rare monster, but um, its ability is anytime you rolled a one, like a natural one when you're rolling dice, uh, you got to re-roll the die and ignore that ignore that result. So ones were just impossible for you. Um, but there was another monster that its power was 4d4, and it counted each of those dice separately for that for that ability. And so uh, we um, it wasn't a problem in the game we were specifically playing. So we did actually exactly what you just mentioned, Gabe, where we ran a few mock battles where we grabbed a few of the 44 monster, put it on the team with um, with that monster that can turn those ones into a reroll. And then we pitted against one of the strongest teams we could think to just kind of put together that just, you know, not maybe not a ton of synergy, but just fairly large numbers that should be kind of hard to get to. And it just stomped it. Like it was <laughs> it turned out that comb particular combination was particularly nutty when the lowest that 44 could suddenly roll was an eight. <laughs> right. And then as a designer, you have the decision to make of do we leave this in? Because it is a pretty cool combination if people can figure it out and work it out and get these two on their team and so do we want to just lower the ratios of these cards and make mm -hmm. it a harder thing to do or do we want to cut the abilities entirely and, and not even allow this to be possible you have to make that decision i don't know that there's a wrong answer necessarily it just depends on the kind of game that you want to make do you want broken combos or do you want to get rid of all those and then just go in from there i think we actually kind of have a um an advantage in designing these sorts of of games as far as balance goes, Gabe, in that, well, yours is a co-op game. Oh, that's kind of, that's so interesting. So because my game's competitive, when those sorts of things arise, 
um, the game kind of has an evolving meta, both over the course of a single of a single game, because it does last eight rounds. So if you notice an opponent has a particular strategy, you're able to counter it, but also just over the course of multiple plays as well. If I know, say, my cousin Isaac is someone I play with fairly frequently. He enjoys the game. Um, if I know he likes soul monsters, right, I know I'm able to use uh, certain monsters to counter those. And I know he might just, you know, build into those sorts of strategies just because he tends to like them. But then he knows that I know that. And so he's able to then, you know, maybe slot in those individual um, individual characters that can counter those counter strategies. And then we get to play this sort of really interesting back and forth RPS game of how much do we want to go to our own strategies versus those counters. Um, because those counters are built into both the type system and also, I assume, into effects of our games, we're able to make sure that those sorts of broken strategies have counterplay, either intentional counterplay or just players um, gradually exploring the game themselves and sort of countering each other. Right. It's the natural benefit of designing a competitive game where it has a, a built-in balancing of the other players at the table. Right, whether yeah, it's exactly. people realizing, oh, this this other player is way out ahead. Let's all gang up and bring them back down. <laughs> or in your case, where you have this kind of evolving meta, and especially after you've played the game several times with the same people, you start picking up tendencies like playing poker with the same folks. Like you, you kind of have a feel for what they're going to do, but then they know that you have a feel for what they're going to do. And so, what do they do anyway? You get this really interesting, like Princess Bride kind of moment of, I know that you know that I know. Anyway, if I may, Gabe. Yeah, go ahead. I have to imagine there's something similar in your game in your game though um in that you're playing against NPCs and bots so you are able to in your game put in certain challenges that you know you've put in certain counters to out there for players to go out and discover right Oh yeah definitely and it's also a situation of there are sometimes where I put I want to put players in a situation where I don't exactly know how they're going to beat it. I know they can. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do it, which is cool because it's, it's not like they have to find the right key to the lock. Like, mm-hmm. go find, there's one key out there in the world, go find it and unlock it. And like, no, there's there's several different keys. Here's the lock, and you just have to figure out which key works best for you. And I, that's my preference as far as game design, is not just creating a, a puzzle that has one answer, but creating a system where, hey, here here's the situation I don't know how you're going to solve this. I know you can. Uh, mm-hmm. I've done it several different ways myself in playtesting, and then I want to see how you solve it yourself. And I feel like it gives players an opportunity to feel clever. But yeah, you, you bring up a great point. It's just uh, a little more challenging as the designer because you're having to really fine-tune and make sure that challenges just don't wreck a player right off the bat. <laughs> like You want to kind of give them... you know. But at the same time, later in the game, you can have those challenges that are really, really difficult that the player has to overcome some obstacles. Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to give the players more of a toolkit to pull from and discover their own ways around problems as opposed to just straight giving them an answer. Exactly. All right, so as we kind of close things out, one thing I want to come back to is how to differentiate monsters, right? Your game has over 100. My game has at least 75. That's a lot (laughs) of cards. That's a lot of things. And you don't have, yeah, you don't have that many things you can tweak. With a video game, you can have 15 different stats because the player's not having to worry about that. It's all handled by the code in the back end, and you can have all these different numbers and things that are going on. In a board game, you can't do that because the player is the AI. They're the brain, right, that, that's <laughs> managing all these things. And so what are some of the ways that you differentiate 
your monsters to make them feel different more than just, hey, this one rolls a D4, that one rolls a D6. Cool. <laughs> but like actual things that, that really make them feel different. What? You don't think rolling a D4 is different than a D8? Jeez, Gabe. <laughs> I mean, it's different-ish, but it's not like, you know, it doesn't feel different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find that I've actually been a more of a top-down designer. And so when you find um, these sorts of designs, right, for monsters, um, coming up with really interesting things for them to do, I find to be really enjoyable. So, for instance... Um, our artist came up with like a uh, a ghost monster, right? That can exist in this world. And so finding interesting ways for what does a ghost do is is uh, is really interesting, right? So part of it's typing. So I try to give each type in Moxie sort of its own little unique um, mechanic or theme that it keeps coming back to. So mind monsters tend to like to use items a lot. Um, fire monsters, uh, tend to enjoy, uh, having you spend certain currencies in the game permanently in order to give them benefits. Uh, water monsters really like to play well with other water monsters, sort of as a tribe. So overall, these sort of different typings sort of provide a nice thin layer of continuity between monsters in that way. And then also within monster families, I very much wanted those sorts of effects to, um, to carry weight. So, for example, we have an entire line of monsters, uh, these snakes called Kerpents, although I think we might have renamed them recently. We've been doing um, naming, uh, not competitions, but naming events where people are submitting names and then voting on which ones they want the final names to be. But I, I digress. Um, this, this line of monsters that when you send it out in battle uh, can shut down typings of the opponent's monsters so uh, they can no longer score critical hits against you. Um, and at first, you can put in the the weakest version of that monster, like the first one on the line, and it will you know turn off one typing. But as it evolves, it's able to do that better and better, and eventually being able to turn off uh, multiple monsters of the other team. Um, so connecting it both thematically to those monsters and what they do is really important, and also making sure that they're able to interact with the different systems of your game in interesting ways. I think is important as well. Right. And one thing I've really been thinking through is, is, is this right here is differentiation and making it feel interesting, no matter which robot you're using. Um, but thinking through, okay, this one's really fast, but it doesn't do much damage. Okay. That's, that's mm -hmm. an interesting trade-off, right? And that's really how I think through it. It's like, what are the trade-offs for this particular robot? And maybe this one's really fast and it does a ton of damage, but it doesn't have much health. And maybe this one's really slow but it gives your other team, uh, your other robots on your team, a lot of extra armor or something like that. And so you're always thinking through trade-offs. There's no clear-cut, obvious answer. This one's really fast and really strong, has this much health and a really cool ability. Like, you're not going to have that. There's always going to be some kind of trade-off in there that you, something you have to sacrifice, right? If you want yeah. something really powerful, then it's going to be really slow or not much health, not much armor or something like that. Or it can't move, you know, very many spaces, something like that. And where you're having to figure out the best way to kind of cobble your team together in spite of all the trade-offs. And it's a lot of fun just to kind of crack that code and, and figure things out and give, you know, different robots, different abilities based on these different knobs that you're kind of turning and dialing things up and dialing things down. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's one of the things I've really enjoyed most about the game design process for this particular game. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, in 
in Moxie, we, um, in addition to just what they can do in battle, there are a lot of, mo- well, not, there, there's quite a bit of monsters that are able to also interact with um, your ability to search cards or get cards, like item cards from the market, etc., that can interact in more than just battle, but they might not be as good in combat. So you have to ask yourself, is this specific ability giving me enough um, extra benefit while searching and crafting my team that it's still worth a slot on the team versus maybe just a big old beefy beater, right? Um, there's certainly something to be said for the monster that can just roll a d20 and come and swing in. Um, but there's also something to be said for those smaller monsters that maybe have more interesting abilities, like all of your coin flips always land on heads, and what what how what weird ways can you use that, right? Um, <laughs> and things of that nature, or ones that help you find specific monsters, or other sorts of utility, I think is really an interesting call to make. A lot of those sort of incomparables. Yeah, I love that. One of the things I'm doing kind of similar where the robots interact with the game outside of combat is so as you're going through the narrative, you have all sorts of of events and things you run into. You have to make a choice and you're going to roll dice and you've got an ability score. It's kind of like an RPG where you've got strength and agility and intelligence and stuff like that. And you have maybe some modifiers, some bonuses, but then depending on what robots are in your team, they might also give you some bonuses. So like, for instance, this robot might be really, really strong. So anytime you run into a strength check, you roll the dice, you add your bonus, and then you add its bonus as well. And if you have three uh, robots in your team that are all strength robots, then you get a plus three from your team. And so you're thinking through, okay, what are my uh, weaknesses as a player, as the character in the world? Well, maybe I want to have some Robomon on my team that help me make up for those weaknesses. You know, maybe I'm not very strong. Maybe I've got a negative one to my strength roles. So maybe I want to add a couple strength Robomon to my team to kind of overcome that. And so, again, thinking through outside of just combat, again, that's another knob that you can turn, another way to differentiate uh, cards or or characters or or monsters or robots in, in our cases to make them interesting, to make them different, and to feel like more than just a big old bags of hit points or big old bags yeah. of power damage, something like, that. You know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, Gabe, I just realized we both have ways of incorporating the actual player character themselves as a part of this world, which I think is really interesting because I don't think I've seen that in any actual like monster taming game. Generally, in these like the video games and like monster taming video games, the player character themselves doesn't do almost anything as a person. And yet both you and I have systems in our games where our players as characters have an impact on the game. And I think that's super interesting. Yeah, you bring up a great point. Usually the player in the game is just like a generic sprite. I mean, that's all they are. They don't do anything. They just kind of wander around and then the, the monsters or whatever do things yeah, they're just for kind of them. Self-insert. But exactly. So how does it work in your game though? Yeah. So in Moxie, um, the way it works is that at the beginning of the game, you are given a selection of three character classes to choose from. Uh, the characters in Moxie, before they learn that they have this talent to charm monsters, have their own lives, right? They're engineers, they're uh, craftsmen, they're um, alchemists. They do stuff in their world outside of raising monsters. And so they're, a- or students. So they're able to take those skills with them uh, when they start learning to tame monsters um so uh from those three you're given they each have their own unique ability you choose one of them to represent you 
And that ability will give you, that class will give you some sort of ability throughout the game that lets you interact in the world in a different way. Uh, For instance, you might choose a class that specializes in a certain type of monster. And so when you use those monsters in combat, uh, they will grant you, you know, certain benefits. Or you might be an outcast who has been banned from the capital city, has lived outside of it most of their life. And so while you don't get the benefit of, say, going to the market, you're much more adept at capturing monsters, at finding them and exploring the world. And so uh, it gives players a, a starting point on how to explore the game in different ways to interact with it. Um, and just sort of as a as a jumping off point and how they might want to craft their strategy. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, man, this has been excellent. Let's do some closing thoughts. Maybe yeah. people are listening to this and they've maybe been working on a game like this, a monster taming game for a while, or maybe they're hearing this episode and going, you know what, I'm going to design my own because there needs to be more of these in the world. Now, hopefully, uh, I, I hope that that's the case with people listening to this because I, I want to play more of these games, not just design more. Uh, what would you tell them? Though? What would be some closing thoughts as an encouragement as, as far as these kinds of games are concerned? Um, I think I would tell them, that they should find the bits of this genre that really speak to them. Something that they want to capture about it. Because there's certainly way more ways to look at these styles of games than just the way you and I have. Even in our two games alone, we've approached it from very different angles to get very different games. Um, But there's a lot more to them than just the things we're approaching. So, like, for instance, in Monster Rancher, it concentrates a lot more on raising one single individual monster. That could be a way to take the to take a board game, right? And concentrate on sort of that way, sort of a, a raising, spend more time on the single raising point. So find something in these games that you really want to capture and just try to capture that sort of that sort of a feeling, right? That sort of theme. Yeah, I definitely agree. As a person who has attempted or is currently attempting to capture the entirety of the experience, <laughs> I would suggest maybe people don't try to do that because, <laughs> goodness gracious, it is so much work. Um, and hopefully it's going to all pan out and it's going to work out really well and people love the game and, and it does well uh, on GameFound here pretty soon. But yeah, I would I would definitely agree in encouraging people to just find the thing you love most, whether it's the exploration part of it or it's this you know discovering new things or the evolution and the actual raising of things or the battle like focus in and figure out like what's the core experience you're going for and then create a 60 minute version a 30 minute version 90 minute version something like that where you're not kind of overwhelmed with so much going on <laughs> you're just focusing in on on different parts uh, that's my advice as someone who's doing the opposite of that and uh, maybe do as i say not as i do but, uh, uh, anyway so we've talked a lot about your game tell people where they can find it you know what you're thinking like what's it what are the next steps yeah, absolutely. If you're interested, you can check out Moxie at DiceGodGames.com to find all of my projects. Currently, it'll lead you directly to Moxie's page. Um, we also have a Facebook uh, page for the... We also have a Facebook group for the game. You can find by searching Moxie, A Journey of Monsters on Facebook. And if you're interested in trying the game yourself, we have the most recent version of the game available for free on Tabletop Simulator. If you go to DiceGodGames.com um, and enter your email, we'll send you the link to it uh, straight to you. Awesome. Well, Tyler, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with bringing the game together. I hope everything comes together for the Kickstarter and all that here in 20. 20- 22 and uh, good luck with everything else you got going on right now thank you so much gabe good luck with your game as well i wish you the best thanks man thanks for listening 
Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?